So glad to be here with you today. This is the day the Lord has made. And your response would be, let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made. So today, what is it for you, Coke or Pepsi? Yeah, that was real clear. So if you're totally a Coke person, both hands in the air. Let me, hear, let me see this. Hands down. Along with me, Pepsi in the air. 50-50. My question to you would be, how thirsty would you get before giving in and drinking the one you don't like? How thirsty? Not that thirsty, I hear. I want to know if any of you would go so far as to choose one or the other exclusively. In other words, you would never drink the other no matter how thirsty you were. Anybody in that camp? A couple of you. Okay, now the next uh, little question I have for you, I realize is just a little sensitive today. So, cubbies or cardinals? I see the jerseys out there. How many of you would wear your roommate's ugliest shirt before you would wear a jersey of the athletic team that you despise? Yeah. yeah. I see those hands too. iPhone or Samsung? Popeyes or Chick-fil-A? You people have strong feelings out there. There are some athletes who will only wear Nike. There are some of your parents who will only drive a Ford. There are some guys who will only wear Levi's. In popular culture, we make exclusive commitments all the time. We shop at exclusive shops, we eat at exclusive restaurants, and we can be downright stubborn at times in our allegiance to certain things. This morning, we'll discover what it means to engage in worshiping God exclusively. And we'll find out that it's a much bigger deal than chicken or baseball. We're in the beginning of our Bible Monday chapel sermons. And last Monday, Dr. Elaine Bernius laid out God's purpose in giving us commands to live by. What was God's purpose? The purpose was freedom. Freedom to run toward God, not away from God. And God's intent was not to create legalistic rules to show us who's boss. God's purpose was to create the best life possible to experience the best relationship possible. There's a great paradox in obeying God's commands. The more you surrender, 
the freer you become. Today, we hear the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is really about worship. But not worship in the legalistic sense. Worship in the relational sense. There's a reason that this is the first commandment. God didn't start his list of commands with, you shall not commit adultery. He didn't begin with, remember the Sabbath day. He began with this one. You shall have no other gods before me. And it's not only first in the list, it's first in priority. For really all the other commands flow out of right worship. When we get worship right, we get all the commands right. But before we can look carefully at the first commandment, we have to back up just one step and discover somebody is speaking here. Of course, it's God. But God not only gives us his name, he identifies himself as the personal God of Israel. And so, at the beginning of Exodus 20, we hear these words, I am the Lord. That would be Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God. That would be you. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And actually, it is out of that identification that the commandments begin. The commandments begin out of relationship. God brought Israel out of Egypt for the singular purpose of relationship. That's why he led them out. He wanted to create a community of God worshipers that belonged to him and him alone. And so it's on the basis of who God is and what God has done that God is worshiped. And it's this God, this God, the one true and living God that makes the incredible claim to be worthy of worship to the exclusion of all other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods? Seriously? The vast majority of us in this room would agree that we should worship God. I mean, that's a given if you're a Christian. So far, so good. Worship God. But the remarkable nature of the first command is found in the exclusive worship of the true God. And this is where the first commandment could make some folks just a little uncomfortable. Many people today do not object to worshiping God. But to the exclusion of all others? Would it surprise you that some Christians even choke a bit 
over the exclusive nature of the first commandment. This is not a day and age when it is easy to accept hard lines that may not be crossed. Generally, we feel more comfortable with blurring the lines. See, if you recognize some of the postmodern views on worship that are alive and well in our culture today, God plus, it's fine to worship the God of Scripture. But you may also worship other gods at the same time that may be convenient to your situation. For instance, <clears throat> while visiting or living in another culture. This is polytheistic worship, worshiping more than one God at once. God minus. Meeting God's expectations for true worship is good, if possible, but not a necessity. God just wants worshipers to be happy. So whatever or however you go about it is good. God's fine when we're just there doing our best. God minus worship is God light worship. Worship focused on pleasing people. This is narcissistic worship. Worship focused on our own pleasure. God either or. It doesn't matter which God you worship as long as you believe in some God. Worshipers may choose a deity based on what makes sense to them. Just pick one. Truth is relative. This is relativistic worship. One God is as good as another. God vague. There are alternative titles sometimes used for God that leave the worshiper quite open to interpret just who this God is that we're worshiping. There are many names and titles for God in the scriptures that are appropriate to use, but if God is referred to in vague ways, here's a few I see around, universal one, higher power, radiant one, it can get confusing. Who are we speaking about? Which God? For that matter, if we only refer to God in the second person, you, with no name, again, I would say, who are we referring to? When titles for God are vague, they provide lots of room to interpret the character and the nature of God according to our own perspective. And this is ambiguous worship. God is defined in this case in very unparticular ways. Now it's easy to see the widespread confusion on the landscape today. The first commandment helps us to get our bearings. God could not be clearer we worship God and God alone. Worshiping God exclusively is a matter of covenant. In fact, several Old Testament passages refer to the Ten Commandments as the words of the covenant. A covenant is a relationship based on a firm pledge or promise made between two parties. For example, when a couple is married, they establish a covenant on their wedding day. Traditionally, the couple will speak public vows to one another to pledge themselves exclusively to each other. In essence, they say, I will have no other lover before me. The traditional wedding vows go something like this. 
Will you have this woman to be your wife to live together in holy marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others? Be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. The vows are exchanged, the pledges made by both parties to love their spouse to the exclusion of anyone else. Exclusive love. Now notice how different this is from the wedding vows that are sometimes heard today. Vows that have no intention of pledging exclusive love to one individual. For instance, one couple wrote their own vows and the groom loved orange Tic Tacs and so the bride vowed this, I promise to accept orange Tic Tacs as a food group. That is my pledge to you. Another groom made this vow. I will love and be faithful for as long as we can stand each other. My guess is that didn't last too long. <laughs> you see, Vowing to forsake all others is strangely absent from many wedding vows, but maybe that's because vowing exclusive love to anyone, much less to God, is becoming a little more obscure. Jesus worshiped God exclusively. All four gospel writers portray Jesus as worshiping God and God alone. Every instance of Jesus as a worshiper in the temple, in the synagogue, in public prayer, in private prayer, depicts him as worshiping the God of his own covenant people. But he took it a step further. He did not just worship the Hebrew God. He made God the Father his sole object of his worship. His resolve was tested at the earliest point in his ministry. Apparently, apparently it was the one thing he, Jesus, had to get right, right from the very beginning, or his ministry would fail, utterly fail. Would he worship God exclusively? Immediately following his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil. And here was Jesus' first real test would he pass the test? The tempter had tricks up his sleeve. They included this one as recorded in Matthew's gospel. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He said, I'll give you all these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, go away, Satan, because it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. In this exchange between Jesus and the devil, Jesus was not only indicating whom he would worship, he was declaring whom he would not worship. His unrelenting commitment to worship the Lord God alone was actually an act of defiance against the evil one. Do you know that every time a Christian worships the one true God, they are not just establishing whom they will worship. 
but also whom they will not worship. Every true act of Christian worship is in defiance of Satan. The one who has contended for God's glory from the creation of the world. This is a big deal, a very big deal. You see, the center of gravity shifted when God's son was given flesh and born into this world. We worship the same God, but now we worship the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, it is God's, the Father's will that his son becomes the centerpiece of worship. We worship God, but we worship God in Christ. The writer of Hebrews explains it so well in the opening words of the book. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Actually, as Christians, we worship the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but our worship is Christocentric by God's plan. This is so evident in many of Paul's letters, but nowhere better than in Philippians 2. Read aloud with me. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's exclusive worship. When God's son is worshiped, God gets glory. Having no other God before us is to exalt the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in which God receives great pleasure. It was February in 2015 and I had been invited to preach in a chapel service very much like this in New York. In fact, the whole setup was very similar to this, only just a, just a touch smaller. And the topic of my sermon that day was the imperative of understanding Christocentric worship. And I was making the claim that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is actually present among us when we gather to worship, which is true. I was about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, standing here in the middle, alone. The band had led music and they had exited the stage, much like ours. I had been introduced. And out of the peripheral vision on the right side, I saw some movement and I, I saw someone coming down this side aisle on the right, coming up the stairs, 
and standing about here. And I was there, hands crossed in front of him, facing me, staring. It's a little unnerving. I didn't know exactly what to do, but I decided, well, I will just keep on going. So I kept on preaching. After a sentence or two, I kind of glanced to my right, seeing what was going on. There he was. I kept on going. A few more sentences. Glanced to my right. There he was. Now, of course, I have to tell you, at this point, I'm quite concerned. And here's what went through my mind. One of two things is happening here. Either there's going to be a violent act. Actually, the week before, there had been a shooting at a Christian college, Seattle Pacific. And unfortunately, this is not altogether rare. And the thought crossed my mind, he could be dangerous. The other thought that came to my mind is this is possibly an act of spiritual warfare because I was preaching on the centrality of Jesus Christ in worship. I'm unrelenting about that because the scripture is unrelenting about that. The dean of the chapel was sitting right where our dean of the chapel is, exactly there in the front row. And I'm thinking, come on, Jonathan. Take over here. I'm a sitting duck. And Jonathan sits there and doesn't come forward. Eventually, this young man who was a student at this college made for the pulpit. I made for the back of the stage. And I surrendered the pulpit to him. And he began a very animated message which I did not hear or follow because my brain was not in what he was saying. At that point, Jonathan, the dean of the chapel, came up the stairs and said to me, did you arrange for this? <laughs> now, I had a mic on like I do today, so all of the group heard me say, I've never seen this guy before. I have no idea what's going on. And so, I thought there would be an altercation, but there wasn't. Jonathan came forward and took this young man by the elbow, brought him down the stairs, and sat him beside him right there. I looked up, and there were police in every door. The security had been called, and they were awaiting in case they were needed for some sort of tragic outcome. So, like, my next thought is, what do I do next? <laughs> Where do I go from here? And I stepped forward and I heard God say to me, take back the territory. That's what I heard. And at this point, honestly, I, I was not in control. God was in control, so I, I take... I mean, this is just what happened. I, I didn't, I was in a fog. I said to the students, 
would you say Jesus is Lord? And all of them said Jesus is Lord. And then I, I just repeated it thinking I was giving closure to that little moment. And so I said, Jesus is Lord. And they said, back, Jesus is Lord. And a chant developed that I wasn't planning on. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I invited them to stand and pray the Lord's Prayer with me. They exited. The students exited quickly. FYI, it was visit day on campus for parents. That's good. I don't think too many went to that college <clears throat> from that group. And they, the officers came and escorted this young man off. And there's more to the story later. But my point today is to say this to you. If there is one thing that the enemy desires, it is to receive the worship that is due only to God. Let me say that again. If there is one thing that the enemy desires. It is to receive the worship that is due only to God in Christ. The enemy's tactical approach is to divert our worship to other gods. In fact, it is to have other gods before us. That's the goal. But this we know for sure. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not share my praise with carved idols. You shall have no other gods. Not just because the law says so, but because God's love says so. Love is the reason for the law. Biblical worship is focused on the object of our love not the keeping of a legal code. God asks each one of us, will you love me and me alone? Will you worship me and worship me alone? Biblical worship is one of the most important things you will ever do. And actually, this question, whom will you love, whom will you worship, is the most important question you will ever ask or answer in your lifetime. Why does this matter? Because it is possible that in your lifetime, you may be required to make a public declaration to exclusively worship God and Christ at great personal risk. This really matters. It's not a benign decision. You shall have no other gods before me is not just something to believe in and it's not just something to obey. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to be daring in your devotion to worshiping God and God alone. It's an invitation to be brazen in your boldness of worshiping God and God alone. It's an invitation to be radical in your relationship of worshiping God and God alone. And you must start now. The first commandment calls us to our first commitment. 
You know, it's interesting that when God finished elaborating upon all the rules and regulations for the Israelites in Exodus 20 through chapter 23, chapter 24 begins with a public commitment, a public declaration. God asked the people, called them to the mount, and asked them, what's it going to be? Will you worship me and me alone? They assembled. They stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. They heard Moses speak all the words according to Exodus 24. And they pledged themselves with one voice and they said twice in that passage, everything that the Lord has said we will do. So what will it be for you? God plus, God minus, God either or, God vague? Or will you accept the invitation of love, perhaps at great risk? And this morning, I'm going to give you the chance to publicly commit to taking your stand to have no other gods before you. First, I will give you a moment for quiet self-examination, maybe even confession if necessary. And then after this, I want you to think about your intent to worship God exclusively, to have no other gods before you for your lifetime, not just today, for your lifetime. And then at that point, if that's something you are willing to pledge to God, I will give you an opportunity to stand in silence as simply a public testimony that I stand as a witness to love the Lord our God and to have no other gods before me. So first, a moment of silent reflection and self-examination. Please remain still, please remain quiet, and receive an invitation. If it, is, if it is your intent to have no other God before you, but to worship the true God and God alone throughout your lifetime, please stand as a testimony of your intent. Bless God. Bless his holy name. Let me say this first and you say it back. I will have no other gods before me. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, even as you sustained our Lord Jesus, to withstand the test to worship other gods. Send your power to fortify us with not only the resolve to do the same, but fill us with the joy of loving God and loving God alone. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen.
you are free to go in peace.